Tickets are now available for the 100th episode News Weekly, live on January 19th, 7pm at the Comedy Republic in Melbourne. Head over to thesamishah.com, that's T-H-E-S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H.com for the ticket link. Patreon subscribers get a discount, so become a subscriber by going to patreon.com slash to support the podcast. Top Stories of the Week Israel finally remembered the hostages. Also, the world continues to forget Sudan. And more countries continue to ignore the lessons of history. All that and more on Newsweek. Hello and welcome to News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. It's less of a ceasefire and more of a pause fire news now. Now, before we begin, I'd like to do the standard acknowledgement of atrocities that is mandatory when talking about this topic. So, I would like to acknowledge that Israel has a right to defend itself and the hostages need to be freed. And this began with Hamas committing a terrorist attack of unprecedented scale on October 7th. And I would also like to acknowledge that Israel is an apartheid state and something-something settler colonialism and this actually began in 1947, but actually also began when Jacob and Jeanette Herzl in 1859 had dirty sex and nine months later named their son Theodore, which is a name you don't actually hear much anymore. There, now with that out of the way, all my bases are covered and you're all equally angry at me. The Israel-Gaza war has now been going on long enough that it's no longer the top story on most international news websites. In fact, at the time of this recording, the BBC front page shows riots in Ireland, a review for Joaquin Phoenix's new movie as Napoleon, and blue whales returning to the Indian Ocean. This is now an ecological paradise teeming with life. But back in the 1960s, Soviet whaling vessels captured and killed hundreds of blue whales in these waters. Blue whales, they're showing Ukrainians they can come back from Russian attacks. So what is the update on the Gaza conflict? Well, remember the hostages? If you're a pro-Palestinian protester, you might remember the hostages as the faces on the posters you keep pulling down because you can't keep the thought that there are two groups of victims here in your head and the Palestinian people really are doomed to have the dumbest supporters on their side. And if you're a member of the Israeli government's far-right faction, you might also remember the hostages, but only because those pesky families of the hostages keep demanding you stop killing Arabs and maybe try saving their relatives instead. That's a hostage family member literally saying maybe you stop talking about killing Arabs and start talking about saving Jews. He's addressing Israel's national security minister and guy most likely to be a serial killer despite the jaunty way he wears his yarmulke, Ben Gvir. Gvir, it should be remembered, was rejected by the IDF for being too extremist, had a photo of an Israeli terrorist in his bedroom as a teenager, which means he definitely masturbated to it, and once tried suing his father's Sri Lankan carer for asking him for severance pay. So, of course, he's the guy Netanyahu formed a government with. Well, when he's not telling the police to support ever-increasing settler attacks on the West Bank, which he did this week, he's trying to legislate the death penalty for arrested Hamas terrorists and supporters, which the hostage families were worried might put their family members at further risk. That meeting ended with Gavir yelling at the families, quote, you don't have a monopoly on pain. 
Meanwhile, the death toll in Gaza continues to climb, which is not that big a deal if you say the phrase collateral damage enough times to yourself to block out the sounds of families crying for their dead loved ones. And then finally... Can we begin with a major breakthrough in the Israel-Hamas war? The Israeli cabinet has approved a deal to secure the release of dozens of hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza six weeks after they were abducted from southern Israel. The deal was negotiated by the US and Qatar, which means it was negotiated by the US and migrant workers in Qatar because no Qatari is actually capable of doing anything themselves. It has resulted in a four-day ceasefire and Hamas returning 50 hostages in exchange for 150 Palestinian women and children held in Israeli prisons. For Gazans, this will offer some much-needed relief from the constant bombing. For the Israelis, this will offer some hope for the return of more hostages. And for everyone, this will offer a glimmer of joy. As Ben-Gavir is so angry at the ceasefire, he is threatening to resign. So who are these Palestinians that Israel is releasing? Well, Israel has about 8,300 Palestinians in Israeli jails. One of the officials who keeps track of Palestinian prisoners is a former prisoner himself. I have been born twice. One, the first day of my life, and the new life that I received when I have been released from jail. Kadura Faris was imprisoned in Israel for being a member of a Palestinian military cell and was released in 1994 as part of a prisoner swap after the Oslo Peace Accords. He's now a Palestinian government official in charge of detainee issues. And he says Israeli troops stepped up arrest raids in the Israeli-occupied West Bank during this war to have more detainees to negotiate with now. From 7th of October until today, Israel arrests more than 3,000 Palestinians, and the majority of them administrative detainees. That means they can be held without charge indefinitely. Faraz says none of the Palestinians on this list are convicted murderers. There are some accused of violence, like Nurhan Awad. Other offenses include stone-throwing, incitement, and membership in what Israel considers a terrorist group. That's from National Public Radio, once again reminding us that both sides of this conflict are governed by human rights abusing pieces of shit who continue to make this entire crisis worse as long as it keeps them in power. And if you think saying that is picking a side, then you're a moron who shouldn't operate heavy machinery. Now, the chances of this ceasefire lasting the full four days without either side violating it is about as high as the chance of this whole conflict ending in a two-state solution being agreed upon by peace-loving leaders on both sides. Which is to say, not at all. But at least it can set the stage for some possibility for an end to the war, if all goes well, right? The spokesman of the Qatari foreign ministry says uh, he hopes the pause will become permanent. As I said, we're in a long journey. In this journey, we have goals to fulfill, to dismantle Hamas, to bring the hostages back home, to rearrange the borders, to keep them safe and create deterrence in the region. In this process, we are in one stage. And if it happens tomorrow morning, it is a temporary stage with which we're going to return hostages back home. And after that, we will continue the fighting. Returning the hostages is in stages, and the war is in stages. This we must understand. This is what was decided by the Israeli government, and the IDF executes. That's the IDF spokesperson there giving Hamas an incentive to violate the ceasefire.
Not that it needs an incentive, since Hamas sees dead Gazan civilians as a victory even more than the IDF does, but you can at least pretend to offer hope. Despite what the pro-Palestinian supporters shutting down a Maccas in the Melbourne CBD might think, Australia's ability to influence the conflict is quite limited. What it can do, however, is offer support to Australian citizens and permanent residents and their families in the region. This came under scrutiny recently when Home Affairs Minister Penny Wong revealed that Australia had just given 860 temporary visas to Palestinians. Here she is on Sky News. Uh, on to the 860 visas for Palestinians, Minister. How does this intake compare to other intakes of Palestinian or other refugees in war? Well, be, be clear that uh, uh, we've, in the same period, granted some nearly 1,800 uh, visas to people who have applied who are in Israel. Uh, so that gives you some comparator, uh, you know, some 860 out of uh, Gaza and about 1,800 out of Israel. I would emphasise, and I've seen the, the opposition out making certain assertions, I would emphasise very clearly uh, that the usual... Uh, security checks, the usual identity checks, the usual character checks were undertaken on this cohort as they are in relation to all cohorts. Uh, and, uh, you know, our first priority is to make sure uh, we uh, manage, uh, we, we keep Australians safe, and that includes mm. managing uh, visa arrangements appropriately. Now, the reason Penny Wong mentions the opposition there is because, sure enough, just as they did when taking in Afghans or Syrians, the Liberal Party and their media wing, Sky News, are very concerned about those browns coming here and being all terroristy, as highlighted in this chat between Tony Abbott and the only woman who doesn't want to rip her own skin off after being near him, Peter Credlin. I've got to ask you about the news late this afternoon. The government has granted over 840 visas to Palestinians. Given what we've seen in recent weeks regarding the Home Affairs Department and the ministers, do you think they're up to the security checks needed before these people land in Australia? Look, I saw uh, the Foreign Minister assuring people uh, just a few moments ago that all the security checks had been done. But as far as I'm aware... There are no Australian officials whatsoever in Gaza. None. Um, so I just wonder how this could possibly be correct. Um, who did these security checks? Um, how extensive and how thorough were they? Which is a very valid question, except the government didn't say the visas were for only Gazans, but Palestinians, which includes the West Bank and Jerusalem. Oh, and also... Just as not everybody from Afghanistan is linked with the Taliban, not everybody who is pal Palestinian is a member of a terrorist organisation. Uh, and, you know, that is something, you know, I think we all understand. Uh, appropriate security checks should be taken, uh, and my advice is they have been taken. Mm. People lie, though, right? In relation to any visa application, it's an offence to uh, give uh, false information to authorities. So, look... You know, all of us want to make sure Australians are safe. And that is, of course, the priority of the government uh, and has always been. In other news, the coalition says we should seize all visas offered to Italians in case any of them are in the mafia, Chinese in case any of them are with the CCP, Japanese in case any of them read hentai, and British in case any of them are, well, fucking British. <laughs> Could our biases be more obvious? News now. 
The break in fighting in Gaza allows us to remember that that's not the only conflict being accused of genocide in the world right now. There's one which is an actual definite genocide happening in Sudan, but is just lacking the catchphrases and Hollywood connections for anyone to care about. The fighting is led by two men, General Abdel Fattah al-Bohan, the head of the armed forces, and in effect the country's president, backed by the Sudanese army. And then there is General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, who was his deputy and is now the leader of a paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. There have been some hope near the outset of this war that the two sides could be brought to the table, but since then the fighting has intensified. It is estimated that more than 5,000 Sudanese people have been killed in the crossfire and many, many more have been injured. Over 6 million displaced and now in desperate need of help. But what is particularly concerning are the reports of sexual violence, including rape and sexual slavery. So who is taking the brunt of the refugee crisis this is creating? Is it the UK? Maybe some member of the EU? Perhaps the United States? What about Australia? I mean, these are the countries that are always so vocal about the massive influx of refugees. On the edge of Lake Chad, in some of the most fertile land of the Sahel, a humanitarian disaster is unfolding, says the United Nations. Half a million Sudanese refugees are living in makeshift tents. That's right, Chad. They're running to Chad. Sudanese refugees' numbers in Chad have doubled in the last six months, paralleling the total arrivals over the past two decades since the Darfur crisis in 2003. By the way, it's not like Chad is sitting on mountains of wealth either. The country has been struggling with food insecurity of its own already. According to the UN, 90% of the new arrivals show signs of malnutrition. Aid agencies say they are overwhelmed and underfunded. The Chadians, they have already shared whatever they could share. They can't share anymore. They even need assistance themselves. So now we need to assist all those 600,000 refugees that came, the returnees from Chad that were living there, but also now we also need to support the Chadians, the host population that are there, that are also suffering like all those Sudanese that have arrived. The World Food Programme says it has barely enough funding for the next three months. The World Food Programme isn't exaggerating, by the way. It's so low on funds, it's already suspended assistance to refugees from Nigeria, Central African Republic and Cameroon. To continue to feed refugees and locals in Chad, it needs $185 million urgently, which sounds like a lot, until you remember that the cost of a several-day search to find the Ocean Gate billionaires who had imploded halfway down to the Titanic a few months ago was over $6.5 million. So the best chance that refugees from Sudan have is if they could somehow become billionaires, then turn into mist on a joyride to the bottom of the ocean, then we might actually fund a doomed effort to find them. Anything less than that just isn't interesting, apparently. Argentina and the Netherlands will be great in about 40 years news now. Argentinians have been suffering in recent times, worse even than that time when Madonna starred as Eva Peron in a terrible movie. Annual inflation has been at over 140% and two out of every five Argentinians are in poverty. So it makes sense for Argentinians to do the same thing every country does when faced with severe economic hardships, and that's elect a far-right nut job with an unhinged personal style who will drag the country into right-wing extremism over a few years before finally choosing a more sensible, moderate leader who will clean up the mess. It's what Brazil did, the Philippines, oh, and the USA. 
Well, Argentina is now in its fuck-around phase, having elected this guy. Well, supporters of the new president, Argentina, call him the madman, the wig. It's due to the floppy hair. He calls himself the lion and the anarcho-capitalist on the campaign trail. He has said that he is... His five clone dogs are his four-legged children, and his best strategist, he called Pope Francis, a fellow Argentinian, a deeply Catholic country, a communist turd. Javier Millet is a former economist and TV pundit who carried a chainsaw with him on the campaign trail, used to be a tantric sex coach. Oh, and he's a cosplayer whose alter ego is called General Ancap, because why the fuck not? So, what are his policies, you ask? He is a very radical politician. He wants to abolish the central bank, replace the peso with the U.S. dollar, abolish abortion, ease gun control laws, abolish the country's tuition-free public education system. But those are some of the more, I guess you could say, mainstream ideas, if you wanted to call it that. Beyond that, he talks about, as you said off the top, that he gets economic advice through a medium uh, from his now-dead dog. He called fellow Argentinian... Pope Francis, a socialist SOB. He calls climate change a socialist lie. He wants to allow people to sell their organs. He is a very different sort of politician in every possible way, and yet he will take the presidency of Argentina in just a few weeks' time. There we go. If you want to buy an Argentinian kidney or penis, then Millet is your man. Well, one group that's thrilled about his victory is other far-right leaders like Donald Trump and Brazil's Bolsonaro, who is currently under investigation for harassing a humpback whale with a jet ski. He was on the jet ski, not the whale. Look it up, it's a true thing. And where there are far-right people with bad hairstyle choices celebrating victories, there's Rita Panahi, the cheerleader of despotism, waving her pom-poms. Let's start with this huge development in Argentina, which has just elected a president that is conservative, is a libertarian, he is vehemently anti-Marxist, anti-woke. Javier Millet has been called far-right, he's been called an extremist, and his rise to power has triggered... All the usual lefties who've, uh, well, they haven't been this disturbed since Georgia Maloney was elected as Italy's leader. That's right, the usual lefties, like, in this case, the Catholic Church. Father Robert Ferrari, a priest working with the poor in the Diocese of San Isidro, which covers suburban Buenos Aires, said he's a person that wants to destroy the state. Classic lefty, that Father Ferrari. Also, Millet isn't your typical far-right guy either. Yes, he is opposed to abortion and euthanasia, but he's an anarcho-capitalist, which means he literally wants to blow up the state bank. He supports freedom of choice in drugs, legalizing prostitution, same-sex marriage, as well as gender identity. But he does say leftards a lot, which is about the level of intellectual conversation required to get Rita Panahi's approval. Meanwhile, over in the Netherlands, another far-right politician with questionable personal style has been elected to power, proving when Europeans talk about never forgetting the lessons of the Second World War, they mean how best to quickly slip into far-right fascism and racist extremism whenever confronted with someone who doesn't look or act like them. Now, votes in the general election in the Netherlands are still being counted, but it seems that the veteran anti-Islam politician Gert Wilders has led his PVV party to the largest share of the vote. PVV, which translates into English as freedom, is said to take around 35 of the 150 seats. Geet Wilders and his Freedom Party want to protect European values like freedom of religion, freedom of speech and respect for human rights by banning mosques, banning the Quran, banning the hijab and banning migration from Muslim countries. 
In the run-up to the election, he indicated that he would be willing to be more moderate on those issues, appealing to a wider base of voters who have never read a history book. Oh, and he doesn't believe in climate change and sides with Putin over Ukraine, in case you were wondering whether Rita Panahi approves of him as well. That's it for this week's edition of News Weekly. Like I said, tickets for the live show, which will be on January 19th at 7pm at the Comedy Republic in Melbourne. Tickets are available at thesamishah.com. That's T-H-E-S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H.com. Also on my Instagram, I'll put it in my bio. You can find the link over there. Buy tickets, come on down. I would love to see you there. Also, I'd love to have an audience there. It would be weird and kind of sad to do it to an empty room. Otherwise, I will see you right back here next week on News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly.